So welcome to another installment of Unraveling Religion. I'm your host, Joel Lessies, and it is my pleasure to welcome you tonight. And uh, I'm here with Micha Odenheimer, uh, and we're in Nepal, in Kathmandu. You know, I, I've uh, become a part of a program uh, which is uh, a social justice and uh, volunteer organization, and Micha is the founder, so. Tevel uh, Tzedek, um has a dual purpose uh, that I hope are, syner are synergetic, uh, the two purposes. Um, it's really to make a, a bridge and a connection of solidarity between uh, the Jewish people, including Israel, and the poor, poorest populations in the developing world, which is oftentimes the majority of the population. At the same time, we're trying to find really the best solutions to helping populations of the extreme poor communities. And, and, and at the same time, we're also introducing uh, young people uh, from around the world to this, the reality, the complex reality of poverty today um, and its causes and um, teaching them that they can both uh, be deeply um, impacted by uh, this kind of work and also um, make, a, make a big contribution. So this is a kind of Jewish-Israeli platform for working with the extreme poor in the, in the developing world. Our main focus is on rural villages where we are trying, all over the, all over the developing world, rural villages are becoming um, unsustainable because they're not simply not growing enough food for their population and then there's migration for work and then there's less people working the fields and and it becomes a vicious cycle. We believe and we've proven it, uh, I think, that we can help these villages become sustainable places of opportunity um, where their community is, uh, is strengthened, where the production of food grows, um, where they have uh, new, new kinds of leadership um, that will enable them to stay on their land and stay with their culture. And at the same time, we're bringing young people uh, as volunteers, participants. I like to say participants because I feel like volunteers get at least as much as they give, if not more, probably more, to be out of the encounter. Uh, and hoping that they're going to go on to contribute and to create uh, uh, more justice and more equality and more compassion in their home communities. Definitely, uh, this organization grew out of, um, first out of my reflections as a, I'm a rabbi, but I'm also a journalist, and I started traveling to Africa and then to Asia in the uh, 19, early 1990s, actually 1990 was the first time in Ethiopia, and I started reflecting on uh, what was happening to the world, especially as uh, we became one global economy, and to say to myself, okay, what does the Jewish tradition have to say? Like, we've been carrying with us this vision of justice for so long, because it's always been clear to me that a vision of justice, a vision of hope, a vision of a world where every person has dignity, uh, where all of us are connected to each other in solidarity, is at the really at the core of the Jewish vision, of Judaism's vision. And yet it's, it hasn't been applied 
in a global way because, I mean, it has. It's true. The Jews influenced by Judaism and also Christians and Muslims influenced by Judaism uh, have made you know, revolutionary uh, steps in, 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 in creating a better world. But I come from a more kind of orthodox or traditional background, and the emphasis there has mostly been internal because, you know, sort of the twin dangers of persecution and assimilation have kept the orthodox world, you know, kind of, or the traditional world kind of turned in and upon itself. But I feel like now we are empowered. Um, you know, yes, we face, still face many dangers and so on and so forth, but we're also at the center of um, technology and economics and culture. So what do we have to say? And I feel like now is the time that we have to say that. So let that let me for, to search for how to, in a more concrete way, bring the Jewish tradition to an engagement with the global world. Uh, the, it seems to me that within the Jewish teachings that the idea of tikkun olam is the, the kind of overarching impetus for this. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. So, yeah, I mean, tikkun olam, it's kind of become a catchword. Yes, I think very much that there's this um, the deep belief in Judaism that the world was left kind of unfinished mm -hmm. in order to make man a partner yeah. um, and through man make all of creation or through humanity make all of creation a partner yeah. in the fixing of the world. Of course, the other side of that is that human beings also have a tremendous potential to be destructive too. But there is this abiding belief that human beings can can be transformed, their hearts can be transformed, yeah. and that um, they, they, can, they can really make a better world, and also that their efforts will not be in vain, because they're not, you know, in Judaism we don't exactly believe in, in karma. Of course we do believe in, you know, that you, you're punished for bad and reward for good, but good, actually, good acts and good deeds you know, sort of can create a, a, a fixing, a repair that will be able to hold light that's far, far greater than we might have imagined. Really, the changes are not, in, not always incremental. They're like gifts where there is really a deep transformation. So um, this belief in, in the possibility of transformation yeah. is, uh, is, for me, at the root of this idea of uh, tikkun olam, okay. uh, fixing the world. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm curious about this, and I, and I think other people would be too. Um, what was the developmental stages for you, uh, both spiritually and practically, to come to this point? Well, you know, I, I grew up, when I grew up, I, my mother came from a very orthodox uh, family. You know, I, I, was, I remember there was like a, a time, I grew up in Los Angeles, in the orthodox community in Los Angeles. So it was like, it was interesting, because at that time, now there are thousands and thousands of orthodox Jews. But at that time when I was growing up, there was only about a thousand Orthodox Jews in all of Los Angeles. Huh. And so it was like living in a small town within a big city. Yeah. I mean, they didn't all live, we didn't all live together. We lived in a number of different parts of the city. But still, we all knew each other. And, but the thing was that my mother, even though, you know, I remember a time when we weren't allowed to eat ice cream because suddenly the community had become more stringent about dietary laws and so on, and there was no kosher ice cream. It might have used gelatin or something that came from an animal product or whatever. Um, and at the same time that there were years that we weren't eating ice cream, we also weren't eating grapes and lettuce because my mother would 
religiously uh, f- religiously upheld the uh, farm workers union strike huh. of migrant workers of no, Cesar yeah. Chavez on yeah, grapes yeah. and lettuce. So for me, it was always very clear that you know that my Jewish identity was meant that uh, we identify with the the poor, the marginalized politically, and and that, that was just something that that was that was Jewish. That was just a part of Jewishness. Of course, also I grew up in the kind of post-Holocaust generation. My father was a refugee from Germany, and most of the Orthodox Jews in Los Angeles had some kind of Holocaust background. Okay. And it also made me feel like we had to identify with the fact that the, the mainstream of power can often be extremely uh, cruel yeah. in, its, yeah. uh, in, in how it wields its power. So that was, that was like at the base. And also I was always very interested in, you know, sort of, I was interested in science, but I was also, from a very early age, felt that, that science was not the only way to look at things. Yeah. So I was interested in non-Western ways of looking at the world, whether it was, you know, Carlos Castaneda or Chinese Zen monks or uh-huh. whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. And eventually I also got, and I went in and out of also being very orthodox. Sure. Um, which was also, you know, kind of part of that, part of that alternative. Um, and at a certain point I got interested in Hasidism and Kabbalah. And that took me, you know, kind of inwards, although I was very, very lucky to find a teacher, um, Rabbi Shlomo Karlebach, who had a deep love for, for the Jewish people, but also for all of humanity. Mm-hmm. And he recognized that there were also holy, holy teachers and holy, holy masters in, in, in other religions. Um, of course, he, he was, you know so, so uh, admiring of his own teachers and his own tradition, but he also just saw the entire world as one, ultimately. Yeah, it's a profound understanding to understand that, that as human beings incarnated, that uh, everything seems so separate, that there, there is separation, but like to understand that it is all kind of a, a unified experience is a very deep understanding, I think, yeah. Yeah, and whenever he would meet anybody, anybody, you know, if you go into a shop um, to buy something, then he would engage the, the clerk behind the counter and somehow, you know, through joking and through laughing and through lift them up. Yeah. Um, and I remember he also would talk about, you know, he would say, look, we're here, we're here to create a new home for humanity. We're, we're, making, one, we're making one wall. But, you know, the Tibetans are making another wall and, uh, you know, maybe the Sufis are making another wall and who knows who. We have to do it together. We each have our unique contribution to make, but the uniqueness of our contribution doesn't require us to say that no one else has to make a contribution. The contrary, we all need to do it together. And in fact, even though he was um, also a refugee from Germany and had actually grown up in Vienna where at the crossroads, his father was a rabbi, so he was saw East, that was, Vienna was kind of the crossroads where Eastern Europe would meet, meet Western Europe. So he knew many of the Hasidic masters and the Lithuanian Talmudists and so on. And he knew what had happened in the Holocaust and how they'd just been wiped out completely. Yeah. And yet his instinct was to go to those places. Like, for example, he went to Poland. He went to Germany many yeah. times. He went to Poland. He appeared on the television in Poland and he said, look, I'm going to be sitting at this cafe all day. Anyone who wants to come, please come greet me. And all day, 
people coming in just to get hugged by him. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, and he would say like this, he'd say, look, if I had two hearts, I would keep one for hating and one for loving. But I only have one heart, so I have to keep it, what can I do? I have to keep it clean from hatred. Yeah. Um, so he was a very deep inspiration. Um, how did you guys meet? Like, how, how, how did that resonance take place? Did you, what, what happened with that? Like, you know, Shlomo was super, super famous in the Orthodox world. He was like a, you know, huge celebrity because he, both because he sort of single-handedly revitalized Jewish music. Huh. He was also a musical genius. Huh. And also because he was kind of a rebel in a sense. He, he left, he, he was slated to become like a great, you know, Rosh Hashiva, the head of an academy, maybe one of the great ones of the generation. And instead, he chose to leave that Lithuanian Talmudic world, go into the Hasidic world, and then finally leave the Hasidic world, uh, you know, the sort of official Hasidic world, and go out to Haight-Ashbury, uh. because he said there's so many, you know, young Jews out there, yeah, yeah, and young yeah. people in general, that need, you know, that need a message of hope, need a message of love, need a message of wow. spirituality. Wow. So he opened something called the House of Love and Prayer. Uh. And he was very crit he was criticized by the Orthodox world, which had, which had especially the ultra Orthodox world that had loved him, but because he would hug everybody, men and women, and he was you know totally unconventional, unconventional, and and kind of an anarchist in his own way. Yeah, Even yeah. though he remained totally you know he remained halachic, yeah. remained following Jewish law. So he was known. He was a known entity. And when I came to Israel in 1978-79 for the first time. It, University, I went to. He had a he had a group of his followers were living on a um, moshav, a little village in Israel, and I went there a few times for Shabbat, and I saw him, but I didn't really connect till a couple of years later. Uh -huh. And actually, I had gone to a yeshiva. I'd gotten interested in Hasidism, and I was studying Kabbalah. And then I had a very very rough year, and I went to see him on a weekend, and I really experienced a healing that weekend with him. Yeah. yeah, and it was a particular moment. And that connected me to him, and I really spent the next five years in New York, where he mostly lived. I mean, he was always traveling, but he, he lived there more than anyone else, really with a group of people who were just, you know, would hang out with him. And, you know, I also worked, but uh, I was, and I studied for my uh, ordination, but I was spending a lot, a lot of time, uh, you know, sort of hearing his teachings and, and praying and singing with him and so on. I was kind of like a Jewish you know, Jewish hippie, very devoted to studying Hasidism and to, you know, kind of hanging out and, and everything beautiful. When I moved to Israel, that's when I became, started to become more practical. Yeah. And I got married, I started to become more practical, I, I became, I started to, to write, I'd always been interested in writing, and that's when I traveled for the first time to Ethiopia in 1990. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that trip to Ethiopia really opened my eyes, gave me um, a sense of how uh, how beautiful um, and magical uh, the non-Western world is, um, you know, and in, 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 in how, how, uh, how flat and deracinated, um, you know, our world can be. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, I saw this tremendous vulnerability yeah. among the people there, uh, among the poor people there. Um, one day they could be fine, the next day they could... Um, you know, have gotten sick and really have no recourse and no medical care, or they'd have to, you know, one day they'd have, they'd, something would happen, the kids would have to drop out of school, uh, a young woman would run away from 
uh, a, a, a marriage, uh, impending bad marriage in the village, come to the city, and within a couple of weeks she would she would be drawn into the life of the bars and have AIDS. I mean, just tremendous vulnerabilities and tremendous um, suffering that comes along with that. And yeah. tremendous, yes, tremendous suffering that comes along with it. So both of those, both beauty and also suffering. And I felt, you know, there's this idea that the um, the presence of God, the Shekhinah, the feminine presence of God, yeah. went into exile with the Jewish people and was there with them in their suffering. And I felt that also in the, in, in, in among, amongst the poor in Ethiopia and Haiti and Somalia and all these places that I went, you could sense a, a Shekhinah, a special intensity of kind of God's presence. Yeah. Well, uh, the, there. I, I mean... That, and also I just want to say that I think that the great suffering creates a kind of great compassion for one another that we identify with when we do suffer greatly. So like the people of Ethiopia or the people of Nepal and the villages, like the suffering creates a kind of generally maybe like a, a kind of like cohesiveness or compassion for one another or understanding of... It of definitely, it definitely yeah. does at sometimes. I mean, it does and I saw that and it moved me greatly. Um, at the other, at the other hand, I don't want to romanticize either poverty or the poor because there's also tremendous cruelty in that world. Yeah, so absolutely. by the same token, as people can just give what little they have, share what little they have in a way that people who have far, far more would never consider. Yeah. At the same time, people are you know sort of forced into situations where they make terrible choices. Yeah, I mean the prophets are. Uh, you know, so passionate and so clear that from God's point of view, uh, attendance to ritual laws or the temple and all of that is really secondary to um, to how 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 we treat each other, and they were so um, penetrating in seeing past. You know, sort of attempts to um, systematize injustice, to blind ourselves to injustice by creating, uh, you know, a systematic injustice, and they just sort of saw right through it, and they basically said, "Look, if you are not, um, if you're not seeing the reality uh, of the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, which for them, which really just means the poor, the weak, the vulnerable." Um, then, then nothing, there is nothing, because, you know, there's one very strong uh, passage from Jeremiah where he says, um, you know, to, to, to bring justice to the poor, the, the weak, the vulnerable, the widow, the orphan, the stranger, that is to know me. God, God says, that is to know me. To know me is to do that. They're, the, they're, they're the very, one and the very, very same thing. And to break that uh, means that I don't even want to hear your prayer. I don't want to. I don't want you to lift them. You can lift your hands up in prayer, but I can't listen. Yeah. Because if your heart is is closed, we don't have a relationship. We can't have a relationship. So I mean, in in, in considering what we've learned about in in Tavel, about globalization and power differentials due to like certain economic uh, structures, capitalism being one. Mm -hmm. um, it's very interesting that people, we, I mean, we have free will, we're a choice, so it's really kind of interesting that um, a few things, I think, that uh, 
one that uh, I have noticed from my own experience that people who have less tend to give more of what they have. Not always, but when they can, they do. Yes. And um, also this notion of like uh, what you just spoke about with uh, the poor, the poor, the marginalized, and um, being at choice with with turning a blind eye and, and going your own way, or or connecting and connecting deeply. And it seems like a massive, a massive choice, but also like a, a massive opportunity to connect really. A, a tremendous uh, mitzvah to, to do this, to like really look and see clearly like, and, and I, if I could just say quickly that um, one of the things that I noticed in the United States after being here in Nepal only a short time is that there's a tremendous disconnect. Everything, there's this like, everything is processed or there's this disconnect like our food, we don't really grow our food, we go to the grocery store and purchase it and put it on the table and we don't see the process behind it. And also, like, uh, everything seems a kind of commodity, and it's an outgrowth, really, of capitalism, I think, that, um, you know, when I go to the store to buy a toothbrush, you know, I see the clerk, I get the toothbrush, and I give him the money, I see a, I see a clerk, he sees a customer, but really here in Nepal, it's something different, it's something much warmer, and much more human, and much more kind of affectionate and warm, which is a, a kind of, like, a greeting, a recognition of the other, a kind of seeing that I think that um, one of the one of the things that Tavel has offered me is this kind of opportunity which um, which you know is grown out of your history and, and, and spiritual progress and vision for 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 things uh, uh, to, to become kind of uh, corrected or repaired and so out of that I wanted to ask you um, one of my favorite teachings is uh, the notion of sadaka, or uh, and I wanted you, if you could or wouldn't mind, talking a little bit about sadaka and its relationship to obligation. What is the relationship between obligation and sadaka? Um, but sadaka has this this it's it's righteousness or a kind of obligation to do it, right? I mean, am I mis am I mis am I misunderstanding or no? No, that's true. Mm -hmm. In fact, in the Talmud. When you say mitzvah, you know, commandment, just without saying which mitzvah, it means tzedakah. It's like the, the kind of the, the paramount mitzvah is the mitzvah of tzedakah. Um, so, and it comes, of course, like charity comes from the word karitas, which means love. You know, where you're sort of doing an act of kindness to the other, which is, of course, beautiful. Tzedakah comes from the word for tzedek, which means, you know, kind of justice or righteousness. It's just the right, it's the right thing to do, um, do the right thing. And I think that, you know, one of the things we see in the Jewish law is that there's something that, yes, we do have, we do believe in ownership of private property, to some extent and in some circumstances, but there's something that trumps private property. If there, there's a passage that in the in the Exodus where it says, you know, if if your fellow man borrows money and you take as a uh, for, to ensure, you know, you take assurance. Oh yeah. Uh, um. Anyway, you take you take his you take you take his 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 blanket. Like insurance, like yeah, like you take his blanket as like a an object that, that will guarantee that he's going to pay back. You have to bring that back to him every night. 
And it simply says, it says, because otherwise, what will he sleep with? So, so you know, the, the, the human, human needs, the recognition of human needs is, is, is something that trumps uh, the notion of, uh, of private property. And we see that in many, many, many different ways. Um, and ultimately, we have to recognize that everything we have is being given to us from God at every minute. Um, so, yeah, tzedakah is, uh, is, is, is very, uh, obviously, is, is, is huge. They say that tzedakah tatzil mimavet, that tzedakah actually, uh, saves us from death. Um, there, there's a story in the Talmud about, uh, a man and his wife. It's a famous story, uh, where he has the practice, he's like a great scholar, and Torah scholar, and he has the practice of throwing these coins into this poor man's home through a pipe every day. And one day, his wife comes with him, and he throws in the coin, but that day, the man uh, inside, the poor man decides, this is the day, I want to find out who's giving me these coins. And, but Marokva, the man has been, who's giving the coins, he, he he's wants to give anonymously, because he believes that's the highest path is to give anonymously. So the man comes out as soon as the coins drop and he runs after Mar Ukva. Mar Ukva starts running away with his wife. And finally they, they you know, they turn a corner or whatever, they see this big communal oven, okay? Where people used to like put their bread or whatever, everyone together. So they jump into this oven to escape the man who wants to find out who's giving him the coins. And um, Mar Ukva starts hopping around because the, the floor is so hot and he can't stand it. And his wife says, okay, put your feet on me. My feet are fine. Put your feet on mine and stand on my feet. And then Mar Ukva, he has, you know, he becomes uh, faint with, uh, uh, with, with kind of um, shame or whatever. He says, what? wow, you know, you're greater than me. Look, your, your feet aren't burned by the fire and mine are. And she says, well, that's because... How do I give tzedakah? I just make a big pot of food, and people come in and out every day, the neighbors, and we talk, and the poor people come in, and we, we talk, and they help stir the pot a little, and then I ladle them out, I ladle them out some food, and it's like totally natural. There's no division. <laughs> so, um, so in that sense, her body becomes, because she's close to other people, yeah. it's like her body itself becomes, you know, uh, it, it goes all the way down to the body, where yeah. his idea of it's more abstract. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that's what what I'd like to see—a world where this kind of solidarity between people is just taken for granted. That's a great story, and there's a beautiful kind of harmony between the husband and the wife. That you know what I mean? Like, I mean, that's that's a great story. So, of there are a few few directions that I'd like to go, and I hope we have the time. But uh, I was just wondering, um, of all the teachings that you know in Judaism, what, what's the favorite? What's, what's the most inspiring, or what resonates with you the deepest? Hmm. Uh, you know, it depends on the day. It depends on the hour. I, I was quoting to you, I was quoting to you in the group today one of my favorites, which is uh, from the prophet Cheskel, Ezekiel, where he says, I will take away from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> and that idea of a heart of flesh, a heart that can 
that can feel, that can really feel. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's that to me is a special special teaching. Uh, one of the teachings from my teacher that has stayed with me the last, you know, he says like this. He says you walk into a restaurant and um, you buy a plate of soup. He says so you get the outside of the soup, but you don't get the inside of the soup. If someone love, who loves you makes you a bowl of soup, serves you a bowl of soup, so you don't only get the outside of the soup, you get the inside of the soup. Uh, yeah. And then you're not, you're not hungry anymore. Uh, yeah. So he says, what is a miser? A miser is somebody who never really got the inside of what uh, he has. Uh, uh, and therefore he can't give it away. He can't give it because he doesn't have it. He doesn't know that he has it. He doesn't it. know that he has it. He didn't have it. Like maybe his, maybe his parents weren't looking at him when they were giving it to him. Maybe God, he didn't see God looking at him when he gave, when, when he got whatever he, he got, so he can't give it away. But then, there's something else, there's something else, there's, you know, that, Shlomo says that, is quoting, I think, the original Rebbe, there are things also that you can't give away. What can't you give away? He says, imagine I give a wedding ring to my wife, you know, and the next day I come, I see she doesn't have the wedding ring. So I say, what happened? She said, well... A veteran came to the door, I didn't have, you know, I didn't have any money, so I gave him my ring. <laughs> he says, not so good, right? right? Because there are certain things that they're always being given. Like if they have a deep, deep significance to them, then it's like they're always in the process of being given. Yeah. So you can't give them away. Yeah. So also like, he says, you know, what about your breath? You can't give your way your breath. You see someone dying... They say, hey, give me some breath. Can I really give him my breath? I can't give him my breath because God is giving it to me every second. Yeah, yeah. But then there's a level that you can give away your breath. You know, there's a story of Elijah, the prophet who, who lies down over the dead boy and breathes life into him again. That we can give away even, even what we're always being given. And that's like a higher level. And and that ability of, of people to revive each other. Oh, yeah. You know? Like, what is a true friend? Is a true friend somebody who, I don't know what, tells us how terrible we are and what we have to fix and everything? I mean, that could be good. But a true friend is really someone who, who revives us. Revives us. Right. Um, yeah. I don't know. I have a lot of favorite teachings. I can, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so the structure, the structure. Let's turn it back to to the to the, mm -hmm. and um, I know that um, you know uh, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of world's religions, and, and Rumi's a favorite. And uh, Rumi says that uh, uh, we're each created for a specific kind of work, and the desire for that work is placed in our heart. And so, just like. Where, where does Tavel work, and like, how did you? What is the process that it has become to what what it is today? So, you know, when I, I first started Tavel, um, I saw it as a platform to bring young people from Israel and from the Jewish world um, to uh, places like Nepal um, in order to. Um, you know, and give them that experience. So at the beginning, like the first cohort, the first couple of cohorts, 
people would come, we would have an orientation somewhat similar to the one you have today. Um, and then people, according to their interests, we would help place them in various organizations or institutions, mostly in the city. Um, so there was a lot of work with street children organizations, with schools, public schools, yeah. uh, with orphanages, uh, with human rights organizations. But we began to see, first of all, that just placing people as interns in organizations wasn't very sustainable. We were sort of outsourcing the uh, question of what do you do with, um, with people, volunteers, want to volunteer and want to give, but they don't have the language, they don't have uh, the knowledge of the culture, et cetera, et cetera. And we began to realize also that the work in the city was hugely important, but there was also, also much of the problems that exist in the city originated in the village. Mm. If it was street children, oftentimes they'd run away from the village. If it was trafficked women, they'd been trafficked from the villages because they were so the villages were so poor. If it was yeah. poverty in the slums, it was migrants who came from the villages. And we began to believe that we can do a lot more if we could get to those villages and really make them sustainable and transform them using agriculture, education, oh, yeah. and all the tools at our disposal. Yeah. And and also that to do that we needed to develop our own, our own Nepali staff and our own Nepali local organization. Yeah, which is, it's called Niyak Sansar, yeah. which means Temple Bhutsedic in Nepali. Yeah. So it's really grew out of our own staff. I mean, we created Niyak Sansar. And did did you want? Because there's a there's a just a a, a recent uh, shift, right? We've become an INGO. Or? Yeah, I mean, we've all an international NGO. We've always kind of been functioning as, as the same as an INGO, but we were, um, we didn't feel, we're a young organization, we didn't feel we were ready yet because you have to submit a three to five year plan, you have to commit to a certain amount of money, um, so we've been talking about becoming an INGO for probably four years now, and now we finally have done it. And a key person in this whole um, development of Tevel Betzedek Niak Sansar is Dr. Vishnu Chapagay, who is Nepali. When I first decided that I wanted to work in Nepal, so someone pointed him out to me in Israel and said, this is the, you know, the head of all the Nepalis in Israel. And he'd spent 11 years in Israel, got his PhD in, um, in uh, plant science at Ben Gurion University. And we were very lucky to have him agree to come back and to um, head the organization here. Yeah. So he's a, kind of a key link. Yeah, and, and a very kind and brilliant man. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, so, yeah. And then the other, the other uh, countries that you work in? So, we worked in Haiti for about five years after the uh, uh, earthquake, mm -hmm. um, uh, together with an organization called Israel, which was funding us. Um, and now we work in Burundi, which is one of the poorest countries in Africa, yeah. um, and suffered a devastating civil war for 30 years. And we're out there in the villages, and really, as far as we can tell, the only you know, sort of Western organization that actually lives in the villages itself, in a remote village area, and works in the, in the village area. So this just began, we've just been in Burundi for about a year. Mm. I, I first of all believe very much in, in quality, like yeah. especially in this kind of work, yeah. that, that 
before expansion, getting the model right is of paramount importance. So of course we've expanded. I mean, in the first few years that we were doing this model of working the villages, uh, we spent four and a half years working in two village areas, and we were working all together in each place with about, I don't know, 400, 500 people. Now in the new area we are working in, we're working with more like 5,000 people, so there is an expansion. Yeah. Um, in terms of expanding to other countries, I mean, I think that we think that our, we're trying to connect with other projects. Uh, there's a project in India that we're, uh, 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 that is sort of coming under our wing to a certain extent. We may also do different kinds of things, so it's possible that we'll partner with another Israeli organization in order to create um, a kind of um, alternative educational outpost for uh, for travelers, you know, sort of a, of a different kind of a Chabad that would, you know, present to uh, Jewish and Israeli travelers a vision of uh, social and environmental justice and compassion um, and relationship to the places that they were in. So that's, possi that's possible. I'm kind of like, I don't know if it's good or bad, but I'm not the man for like the five-year plan or the ten-year plan. I really believe, I mean, I am in the villages we're working in. I am, we have to plan and we have to, you know, we want to leave the village area we are where when uh, we hope that by the end of another three years, four <coughs> years, that the village will be, uh, will, will be growing enough food to sustain itself the entire year and that we'll leave leadership, women's leadership and youth leadership and so on and so forth that can sustain itself. But in terms of the organization, I really believe that opportunities present themselves and that if we deepen the work and the quality of the work will be directed in which way to go next. And then one of the things that I really feel is important is to speak about like how practically, like we spoke a little bit about agriculture and such, but like really like I think that many people, or at least I know I would be and many of my friends would be curious about how how is how are we making changes with like women's issues in Nepal and 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 children like education? So like, I just was wondering like. So first of all, women in in the places where we work often have never been in part of a group before, and have never been asked. You know, you as an individual, talk about your life talk about your dreams, talk about your problems, share, and it's really about, you know, it's about the group, but it's also about you. Yeah. You're not just there to be a daughter, to be a, a wife, yeah. um, but you're there, you as an individual uh, are, are really important. Yeah. And that's a huge change for many women. So in the villages where we've worked, it's amazing the transformation of the of the of, of the women. Is it? Could um, you could you give maybe like a small example or a little? Just example? a small example that in the village we were working called Matabesi with a population called the Dunwa Rai, a very marginalized fisherman's caste that had lost their uh, lost the fish. The fish were no longer in the river. But when we got there, um, the women were literally unable to look you in the eye, and really um, were afraid to, 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 to speak their mind. And now 
They are an integral part of the leadership of the community. Mm -hmm. And that's just a huge change. Yeah. So in addition to that, that I'd say is the most important thing. Yeah. But in addition to that, you know, we work on things like literacy mm -hmm. and on women's health, reproductive health. Yeah. In, in the area, I mean, what we're doing is we're developing leaders so that the groups by now, we're moving into the second year in Ronnie Chop, yeah. uh, second year or the third year, the th third year in Ronnie Chop, third year in Ronnie Chop, we're moving into the third year. So we're now working with, uh, with w w w in the women's groups, the women themselves, we've identified women with leadership to potential and they're becoming the guides of the women's group. So after we leave, yeah. the women's groups will continue. Wow. And it's the same thing with the youth groups, is that we create, a, 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 you know, the model of youth movements, we create sustainability by, um, by having uh, guides. So the, you know, the 13-year-olds are guides to the 8-year-olds, and the 16-year-olds are guides to the 13-year-olds. Yeah. And uh, we have a program where, uh, you know, here in, here in Nepal, school is free, relatively free, up sure. through the 10th grade. Yeah. But 11th and 12th is not free. So we give scholarships to people who are committed to being guides and staying in the, in the, in the, uh, in the movement. Yeah. So, we're, and, and to unleash this power of youth just all that human potential that's just, you know, like I think about it like in sure. the, in the <clears throat> how our education system in, in America has failed, like the inner city and like just across the board, but in, in, in the inner city and, and all that like beautiful potential, all that beautiful imagination and, and intellectual capability and, and ability and potential. So we're, we're, you're tapping into that, which is really something that is, is quite phenomenal. 900 uh, young people in our, in our youth movement. And then, so, in speaking about that, could, could we talk a little bit about, I, I know we had lectures on it, um, but uh, I, I think maybe like a little bit about what is empowerment and, and how, how, how does Tavel work with empowering people? Like Empowerment is, I think, the recognition of the relationship between the individual and, and his community in the sense that when the individual recognizes that he, he, he's part of a community that will support and accept him, yeah. and at the same time that that community is the place where he can express his unique gift, his unique point of view and his yeah. unique gift, um, that I think is the key to, to empowerment. Because so many times we either feel cut off and don't feel supported by others, or we feel swallowed up by others. And to create that relationship where the community and the group is actually supporting people to give what they uniquely have to give, that I think is a key. Which is what, what, what we initially began with, right? Which was what? Uh, what how, how do we say it in Hebrew? Tzalem uh, Elohim? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, could you talk a little bit about that? About the Tzalem Elohim? Yeah. Yeah. So the idea of Tzalem Elohim, that, that man is made, human beings are made in the image of God, um, is you know a very influential idea in Judaism, and it's had many different interpretations. Um, but for me, the interpretation 
that has the most resonance is the idea that that that's, and it's already you know it's already in the Talmud in the Talmud in the interpretation where it compares it says that you know whereas the, the kings used to like make coins with their own face with their face on the coin you know I guess like we have George Washington on the dollar bill <laughs> so so the the midrash says that you know the difference between God and those kings is that when God puts his image on man so every single person is absolutely unique. Their face is absolutely unique. Whereas with the king, all the coins are exactly the same. So, that Selim Elohim is this, you know, is sort of our, is, is our soul shining out, you know, sort of the infiniteness and the uniqueness of each, of, of each person. Really recognizing that, that in some way, um, you know, we see, we, we encounter the divine in, in other people. Yeah. And for me, key teaching is that we also have uh, a responsibility to others because even though it's the, each person has is 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 made in divine image that sense of the divine how 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 able is he to own that and to project that and to live that also depends on the kind of attention and the kind of respect and honor and love that we give them. And when we give more, then they're able to shine more. In every situation, there's an inner spark that we can, you know, sort of make, make glow, <laughs> raise it up. Micha, is there, is there, are there other things that you'd like to touch on? Uh, is there anything that uh, you, you'd like to convey about um, anything at all? I just want to say that, you know, part of the whole thing for me is that I feel like the Jewish people have to go through a healing, that part of what needs to heal for us is our relationship to other, other peoples. Yeah. And for me, this is also about that. It's like sort of a healing okay. for the Jewish people. It is what you were talking about, which was going deeply into something and really doing it thoroughly to, to the best of your ability. We have a compassionate interaction with one another. As, as we know through the Hasidic teachings, it, it, it radiates outwards and opens the doors in unseen ways for other people to do the same. So Tevel Betzedek is, is doing this in this way too, that it's creating a model without in an unseen way and in a seen way. And uh, I know that I want to thank you for this time, Misha. Oh, no problem.